How's everyone doing tonight? Good to see everybody. Everybody joining us on Facebook. Thank you for logging in. Uh, I am not Pastor Mike. I am Pastor Devin, our Connections Pastor here. He is out of town celebrating his birthday, and uh, so he asked me to fill in, and I was more than honored to do that tonight. So before we get started, I had a couple announcements, things going on that are important for you to know. The biggest thing is uh, the Snow Hill that we're doing at Whistle Stop in Hewland Park on Friday. We're doing that from 6 to 10. We still could use some volunteers. We're going to be arriving about 5 o'clock for setup. And then we'll have two shifts roughly uh, from 6 to 8 and then 8 to 10. And then if anyone can stay to kind of help us clean up, there really won't be a lot that we'll have to do. They're coming in with eight tons of ice, and the company's doing that. And then we'll just kind of have to be there to monitor and help out as needed. So if you're free on Friday night, we'd love to have you out there. If nothing else, just come hang out with us so that we can get to know you all a little bit better. And then uh, the next thing is going to be the Christmas service, which is next Sunday. Uh, it's going to be our uh, illustrated Christmas service. I know it's a little bit early, but we wanted to make sure that we caught people who might be going out of town toward the end of the month. So that's going to be our illustrated Christmas service, the first Christmas. Uh, I've heard a lot about it, have not seen it yet, but I've heard a lot about it. It's going to be really good, so don't miss it. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do before I get started was, is if anybody have a prayer request, something in their life going on right now, that they would just say, hey, I, I need some people to join in prayer with me. Uh, maybe you're here, maybe you're online. If you would just signify with a raised hand. And we're going to pray over those. If you're online, uh, put something in the comments so that we know and we will be joining with you in prayer. Well, let's all bow our heads real quick as we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have brought us all here today together. I pray that no matter what's going on in the lives of whoever is here, whoever raised their hand, even those who didn't raise their hand, we all have something that we could use prayer and, and your strength for. I pray that you would meet them in their need. You would remind us that you are very much a part of our situation. You're not far off looking down, just observing, but you're very much involved with us. You care about us, and I pray that you would help us to have your peace in the situations as we walk through them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, anytime that Pastor Mike asks me to preach, I always take that very seriously, and I always want to make sure that I, I, I bring a word that is relevant and something that I feel will be very impactful. And so I pulled this one out of the library of things that I've preached in the past, and this one really stuck to the crowd that I, uh, I preached to before, and I'd love to share it with you today. And so we're going to be starting in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Before I jump in there, I want to give a little bit of a background on Ephesians. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, most probably written to the church of Ephesus, but there's actually reason to believe that this particular letter was not necessarily directed to any particular church, but it was intended to be a circular letter. So it would go to one church, they would read it, maybe copy it, pass it to the next. In this particular letter, we find the summary of Paul's teachings. Of all the letters that he wrote, we get a gist of it from this book. So some believe maybe toward the end of his life, he decided to kind of sum up what he had been preaching and sent this, and it probably was found in Ephesus, and that's why we uh, attribute it to the church at Ephesus. But it could have gone to many, and really it speaks to the church at large and the church today uh, most importantly. And so as we dive into this, I want you to realize that Paul was writing to a particular group of people at a particular time, but it's still relevant to us today. So looking at ver uh, chapter 1, jumping into verse 15, we see, For this reason, I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which existed among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is, uh, so, I'm sorry, I pray that the eyes of your heart will, may be enlightened so that you will know what is in the hope of his calling, what is the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. So there's a lot in there. And I actually, whenever I, I preached on this before, I it was a part of a series where we've talked about faith and love and all of those different things, those core values. Uh, and today I want to highlight spiritual wisdom. He talked about, I pray that you may be given a spirit of wisdom. That's what we're going to highlight today and we're going to focus in on. So what is wisdom? What is wisdom? That can come in all shapes and forms. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about a specific type of wisdom, spiritual wisdom. But before we do that, let's answer the question, what is is wisdom. What comes to mind when you think about wisdom? The first thing that comes to my mind is conventional wisdom, or some might call it common sense, right? Uh, we hear these sometimes in phrases such as birds of a feather, 
walk together, right? That's a common sense phrase. We say that, yet at the same time, opposites attract. So sometimes it might be common sense, but it contradicts itself just a little bit. If you really want to learn conventional wisdom, go through a pregnancy. My wife now is carrying our second child. We have one, Grayson, if you've met him, 19-month-old, crazy kid. We love him to death. He keeps us on our toes. And we have another one coming in February, Lincoln. And so we're going through a second pregnancy. But uh, what we have discovered in both is that everybody has common sense little phrases and thoughts of, of what different parts of the pregnancy mean. So you might hear someone say, well, you have indigestion, therefore the baby's going to have a lot of hair. Unless, of course, the baby doesn't have a lot of hair, and then it was just indigestion. Um, there's also so much around uh, guessing the baby's gender, and I'm actually waiting for when that's going to become offensive to do. I, I don't know. But guessing the baby's gender, uh, here's some things that I found online. If, you have a, if the baby has a slow heart rate, then that means the baby's going to be a boy, according to some people. If you have dry hands, if the mother has dry hands, that'll mean it's a boy. I thought this one was really funny. If you feel super clumsy, that means that the boy, it's going to be a boy. If you carry low going to be a boy. Um, If your hair gets thinner during pregnancy, it's going to be a girl. This one really struck me funny. If your first child's first words were mama, the next baby's going to be a girl. That's strange to me because that's usually the first word of most kids. But, you know, we have these things. Now, with my wife, she was telling me today, both her pregnancies completely different when we're having boys in both cases. So, there really isn't any logic behind it. In fact, There's actually a statistical fallacy when you start talking about this. I looked into it, just having some fun here. And it's called a hasty generalization, which means you're drawing a conclusion based on a small sample size rather than looking at statistics that are much more in line with the typical. Now, uh, what does that mean? It means that all of us, maybe we're basing it off of our own kids or the small sample of people who go to our church, There's no way that we could get a good sampling for the billions of babies that are born all the time to be able to make a prediction of whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. Now, there was one case, I heard about a lady recently, that she is having her ninth child. And she had three boys, three girls. She's had two boys, and the next baby they're suspecting is going to be a boy. And I'm thinking, you know, if anybody could predict, I think it's you because you have a lot to go on there. But here's the thing you got to remember about it. You're going to be right 50% of the time. So that's something to keep in mind. The next thing that we think of with wisdom is experiential wisdom. Experiential wisdom. Now, I wanted to uh, show a little thing up there that I found online. thought it was kind of funny. One of these books listed here is everything they teach you at Harvard Business School. The other one is everything they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. And you could say that the sum of all human knowledge is wrapped up in these two books if you wanted to, but just being funny. Um, So experiential wisdom. In society, we assume that experience equals insight, right? We think that somebody who's been doing something for a long time means that they know better than anyone else, right? We assume that they know what they're doing, but in reality, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. I, I like the quote from an anonymous author. More experience may just mean that you've been doing it the wrong way longer than someone who's been doing it the right way. Something to think about. In fact, too much experience can actually lead to faulty reasoning, and it's called the Bader-Meinhof complex, the association or the assumption bias or the frequency bias. When we experience something for the first time, we tend to assume that we will experience it the same way every time. We tend to see those results, even if someone with fresh eyes would see it differently. So here's an example. If you buy a red car, suddenly you're going to see a lot of red cars because your experience, tell, you know, it's part of your perspective is uh, put into the data that you're interpreting and you begin to see it. Same thing if I do something throughout my life and I get a similar result, I'm going to begin to expect that, that result is going to happen again and again and again. And I might even interpret the data to determine that, it's, that it happened even if it didn't necessarily happen couple of examples. Do you know why we call it the theory of gravity? Because really there's no way to prove it. We base it off of the fact that it's always happened. If I throw an apple into the air and it comes back down, I assume that's going to happen every time. But really I'm just using inductive reasoning. I believe that if I throw it up in the air it's going to come back, but I have no way of knowing for sure that it would. So, um, now if I were to slam my hand down on a table, I assume that I'm going to hit the table. 
But there's actually, I thought this was interesting, there's actually a 1 in 5.2 to the 61st power chance that the molecules in my hand would align perfectly with the molecules in the table and it would pass right through. There's a, there's a very, very small chance. What's my point? I'm, 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 being, I'm being a little bit ridiculous, but my point is this. We assume that things are going to happen a certain way, but really the world is a lot less predictable than we think. It just tends to happen that way in our own experience and the way that we interpret it. So what's all this talking about? Two points. When we think about wisdom, we think of common sense and we think of experience. That's the person who we consider has wisdom. I'm going to challenge that just a little bit today. And I'm going to do that by looking a little bit deeper into what wisdom actually is. Now, in times that I've come up here before and I've taught, I've talked about the word philosophy. is actually two Greek words. Philo, which is love, and Sophia, which is wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And if you were to take an intro to philosophy class, you would most likely meet a man by the name of Plato. Plato was kind of the father of uh, not modern philosophy, but what we think of as philosophy. Prior to him, uh, philosophy was just kind of a, a study of different things, different facts. And he really put it together and made it more categorized. And he did that through several things that he called discourses. One of those discourses was a book called Plato's Republic, The Republic. And in this, in this uh, discourse, he wrote about his own mentor, Socrates, and a man by the name of Glycon. Now, Glycon was an ambitious young man who was from a line of tyrants. He desired to be a leader and to use brute force. Now, Socrates, who was a retired warrior, knew that this was not the best approach to leadership, and he encouraged Glycon to lead as a philosopher king, a teacher of truth, who brings others out of darkness. Socrates attempted to teach Glycon this through what he called thought experiments. Now, one of those thought experiments was, was called the allegory of the cave. And I'm going to just kind of briefly talk about this, and then we'll jump in a little bit further. The allegory of the cave was this, that there were people chained up in a cave, and behind them was an entrance to a cave. By the way, if you're wondering what this is all about, I just realized that I hadn't mentioned that. This is for our illustration. This is, I'm not doing anything with this, so don't expect anyone to pop out or anything like that. Maybe. We'll see. In the allegory of the cave, I could have used that. I should have used that. Never mind. All right. In the allegory of the cave, people were chained up. They were facing the inside of the cave against a wall. And behind them was an opening to the cave, and light was coming in. Now, they couldn't see behind them. They couldn't see what was actually happening outside of the cave. But they could see reflections or shadows of people walking by, and they believed that to be reality. Now, one person escaped from the cave, and he ran out, and he walked out, and he, he, he came out into the light, and you can imagine him coming out with, like, mole eyes. Our, our Yorkshire Terrier likes to sleep under the covers, and in the morning, he crawls out, and he's all squinty. That's kind of what I picture from this person who had never seen the light before. He comes out, and he sees reality for the first time. He sees the truth. And he realizes that what he had seen before was nothing more than shadows. It was nothing more than reflections. And so he runs back into the cave and he tries to tell his fellow prisoners about what he had experienced. And they say, no, that's not true. You're crazy. Why? Why did they, why did they say that? Because they had never seen it for themselves. And because they had never seen it for themselves, they were unable to believe what he had to say. And what Socrates is telling Glycon here is that if you're... If, if you go through life leading and living through the same assumptions that you had before, you're never going to really pursue wisdom for what it is. You have to have an aha moment. Has anybody ever had an aha moment before? A moment where something just clicked together and you, 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 just, you just know, you just understand how it goes. He's saying you have to have one of those for yourself. And then as a leader, you have to lead other people to have those same moments those people in the cave could not understand what truth looked like until they had an aha moment for themselves now what is an aha moment it's the moment where it all clicks together it's the moments that my wife as a teacher comes home and is excited when her students get it when as an english teacher when her love for reading is caught by her students and they realize how great it is to get a good book and to just dive into it and get lost in it because without having that aha moment, you'll, you'll just never know. Here's another example. A mentor of mine, uh, he talked, told a story often about his dad who used to be an executive in a company. And he had this one particular employee who just did not understand the job. He just didn't do it right. 
And they pulled him in and said, hey, this is what you're doing wrong time and time again. Tried to correct him, tried to do things. And finally they pulled him in and said, look, you're fired. And he said, well, why? I just, I just don't understand. And my mentor said that his dad just didn't really know how to explain it. How do you explain something to somebody who just doesn't get it? And he finally just said, look, you're fired because you're an idiot. And the guy was like, well, that's, I just don't understand. He was offended. He left. And several months later, my mentor's dad got a phone call from this guy and said, hey, I'd really like my job back, and here's why. I just got fired again for the same reason. And something clicked, and I realized, you're right, I was an idiot. Have you ever been there before where you realize, you know what, I, they were right. I get it now. And they, this, as the story goes, they hired him back. He became the best employee that the company had ever seen because he had an aha moment. Now, one must have revelation before you can have wisdom. And if you want spiritual wisdom, you have to have a spiritual revelation. So let's jump in to our scripture a little bit more here. A scriptural aha moment. Do we see those in scripture? We see them in a couple places. The first one being Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Peter uh, is a great example. Jesus says, who do they say, or who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Then a little bit later in, in, in Luke chapter 23, we th see the thief on the cross who is, who is hanging next to, in his perspective, another criminal, Jesus, who probably, in his perspective, was not going to be a king, was not going to do anything with his life because he's dying on a cross. But something inside of him said, this is God. This is the true king. And said, remember me when you go into, your, into paradise. He, something inside of him clicked. He had a faith moment. He had a spiritual aha moment. Then we see in John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He came back. And Thomas, who had been doubting that he actually rose, has a moment where Jesus puts out his hand. And he touches his hand. And he realizes, he says, my Lord and my God. He had a spiritual aha moment. Something clicked. He, these men didn't see it before. Something happened. And now they saw it. We can probably all relate to that, being people here at church today who have probably had a conversion moment where once we were sinners and then suddenly we understood the depths of our depravity and we became saved, that was our spiritual aha moment. But truthfully, we have many of those throughout our spiritual walk. Now, the last one I'm going to talk about here today, and we're going to spend some time here, is in Acts chapter 9. Paul's conversion, if you're not familiar with it, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he was an outstanding evangelist, missionary, planted many churches in the ancient world. Really, truthfully, if we want to break it down, every single person in this room is a Christian because of the work that Paul did at some point in time. And uh, so that's something to, to say about him. But before his conversion, he was not the Paul that we read about. He was a man by the name of Saul. And he was the complete opposite of what we read, read him to be in the New Testament later on. He was a persecutor of Christians. He persecuted Christians because he was a Jewish man. And he was of the, the sect called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of people who lived by the letter of the law. They were devout and dedicated to living the law as a set of rules. And not only for themselves, but they were going to expect you to do the same. And this was Paul. And we read about some places in Scripture where he said that he was the best of the best. He followed the rules better than anyone around him. He was surpassing those his age, people older than him. He was outstanding at what he did. He was not a person who you were going to win an argument with. And that's why God went a different route with how he converted Paul. He came and Paul saw this group of Christians and he, was, he wanted to persecute them. So he went to the high, high council. He got a decree from them so that he could go and he could do whatever he wanted to to them to stop them from preaching the name of Jesus because they were preaching grace where he taught law and legalism. And he was going to go stop them. And so he got this decree. He's on his way to Damascus. And if you know the story, a bright light shines. He falls on the ground. He's blind, but he suddenly has a revelation which we're going to read about here. All of a sudden, something clicks. He understands what he didn't understand before. He understands what this whole Christian thing is all about, who Jesus really was. Having never met him, he understands. Now, 
If we look at the book of Galatians, specifically chapter 1, what's happening in Galatians is that Paul, just like with other churches that he started, went and he started this church, and then he would set them up, get them prepared, and then go on to the next one. So he's left. He left this church with a message. He left this church with instructions, with leadership, and then he went on to, uh, to another church. And what happened in his absence was that a group rose up, and they began to challenge his authority. They began to say, Paul's not an apostle. And part of, the, part of the reason was Paul never met Jesus. How can Paul be an apostle if he never met Jesus? And so Paul is writing his letter to the Galatians, and here's what he says in defense of his apostleship, in defense of himself. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying that in that moment that the light shone and hit him, the Spirit downloaded something into him, and suddenly he knew something that he had never been taught. He knew something that no man had ever taught to him. Now, some might say, well, that can't be true, because Paul, after he... After his conversion, he went and he sat under the, under the apostles for a period of time. But he's saying, no, that's not true at all. He says, for if you have heard of my previous life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my age among my people and, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by grace, was pleased to reveal his son... In me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, so he was in Arabia for three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. So now, after three years, he goes with Peter. I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. So let's stop. Let's summarize this for a little bit. He has a conversion moment. He has an aha moment. Something clicks. He understands the message of Jesus. He does not go to the apostles and say, hey, teach me everything you know so that I can teach others. He doesn't do that. For three years, he goes into Arabia, and we can assume that he begins to pray and begins to seek God, and God begins to show him things. Then after three years, then he goes and he meets with one. Later, it says two. Two of the apostles and begins to confer with them. What they do is they don't teach him. They confirm that what God had downloaded to him was the message that they had been preaching all along. Can I tell you that only the Holy Spirit could do that? Only the Holy Spirit could tell one group of men something, and they never have contact with another one, and suddenly they know the same message. That is spiritual wisdom. That is spiritual revelation. That's what happens when you have a spiritual aha moment, and God downloads something to you. That's what's happening to Paul. Jumping into verse 21, he says, Then I went into Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in, in Christ. They only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Now that's a lot of information, but here's what I'm trying to say. Paul defended his apostleship by saying, I didn't learn this. It was revealed to me. So whenever I came to your church and I presented a message to you, I wasn't just saying, hey, this is what Peter taught me. I was telling you what Christ himself revealed to me through his spirit. Why is that important? Because we jumped into verse 15, but in verse 8, he makes a statement. He says this, and he's talking about the teaching that he had given. Because remember, people are attacking him. They're challenging his authority. He says this very bold statement, and it's very full, very packed with, with, uh, with implications. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not the one who has authority. The message is. The message that I gave you had authority. And if I come back to you one day and I say, remember what I taught you all those years ago? Just disregard that. This is what I'm teaching you now. He said, if I come back to you and I do that, do not listen to me. Because what I came and gave you was a revelation from God himself. If I came back to you later, it would just be me speaking to you. He goes further to say, if an angel from heaven comes and shares something, disregard it. Because the revelation I gave you was from Christ 
himself. This is very important. Specifically in the Catholic tradition, they talk about infallibility of the apostles. They believe that the, that the reason why we accept books of the Bible is because of the men who wrote it. Paul's saying here, we don't accept something because Paul said it. We accept it because of what Paul said. Because the message he gave was the message that Jesus preached and the message of the apostles. Uh, in, in Catholicism, they have infallibility of the Pope. That does not stand based on what Paul's saying because it's not tied to a person. It's tied to the message itself. Now, moving forward again, this is all through Paul's work. Since Ephesians is a summary, we can kind of look at different parts of his writings and see how it all flows together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, and when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of of God. Now, two things that stand out here. The first thing being, Paul said, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Why? Because the revelation that he had received only shared that information, that Christ had been crucified and he understood the implications of that. Now, Paul's saying that that's all I claim to know because that's all that the revelation that I had, that's, that's the, the gist of it. Now, Paul was a very opinionated man. We see that in Scripture. Again, he was well-studied, and I'm sure if you would have asked him what he thought about eschatology, the end times, or if you would have asked him about the, uh, the, the limits of atonement, he would have given you a response. But he would have done it in such a way to say, look, this is just my study. This is just my thoughts. All I know for sure is that Christ is the center of it all, and he was crucified. That's all I'm going to preach because that's all the revelation gave me to preach. Anything else is just the, the, the implications from that truth. We preach truth, we guide people in application. I, I believe that's how he, how he practiced his, uh, his thing. The only thing he's going to preach with dogmatism and conviction is that which pertained to the revelation that he had received. Why? Because it's the only thing that he knew for sure. Now, there's times in Scripture that Paul will say something along the lines of, this is not God speaking, this is me. This is my thoughts. This is what I have to say about it. The other thing that he says here is that my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Now, if we jump back to the, to the study of philosophy, Plato, Socrates, what we talked about earlier, it's important because it sets the backdrop for what we read in the New Testament. That was the, 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 the ideologies of the day. To, you know, if somebody were to study right now, there would be a lot of things within the LGBT community, within the woke community that would be important to study to understand why we preach what we preach. So it's important to study those things. Paul said, I did not come with persuasive words of wisdom. Now, jumping back, we know that philosophy is the love of wisdom. Plato essentially coined that term. He made it popular as someone who pursued truth, someone who pursued wisdom. But he also coined another term, and I've mentioned it before. If you've heard it, just let me finish because I'm dying to hear it again. Um, the sophists were another group. Now, the sophists were very similar to the philosophers, except if you kind of bring it into our context today, think of... If any word had ist at the end, a cyclist, uh, something of that nature, it's somebody who practices a particular thing. In this case, they were practitioners of philosophy, of wisdom, practitioners of wisdom. In other words, they used wisdom for their own personal gain. They were not seeking after it. They used it for their own personal gain. They would, it was uh, historic records show that politicians would hire sophists to teach them how to speak eloquently, to teach them how to persuade people. If you take a public speaking class, they talk about rhetoric. They talk about ethos and pathos and logos. All of those things are, were, were practices from the sophists, and they would use those because the belief was, and in many ways it's true, that if I say something in a certain way, I can get you to believe whatever I want. How, have you ever met somebody who is just a really good salesman? They could sell you anything. They're practicing good rhetoric. They're practicing good sales practices. And that goes way, 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 way back to this time that we're talking about. And it's very important that we realize here that Paul is saying this to the church at Corinth. Because the sophists and their practices became known as the Corinthian way. 
Why is that important? Because, and I won't go into all the details of it right now, but if you study out Corinth, what it was, it was the metropolitan hub of the ancient world. It was a place that much happened. There were many sailors, businessmen that came through, and this was a great place for the sophists to practice their trade because it was a great, they had new faces all the time, they could teach people how to persuade, they could sell their product. And the Corinthian church would have been very familiar with somebody coming in and persuading them to believe something. Paul says very clearly to the church at Corinth, I did not come and do that. I did not come and try to convince you. What did I do? I used, or I, I showed demonstrations of power and spirit so that your faith would not rest upon the wisdom of man. You would not believe because I explained it really well. You would not believe because I made it super clear for you to understand and really easy to apply. I presented a demonstration of the Spirit so that you would have a moment of revelation so that you could receive spiritual wisdom. He's saying, I didn't come with a perfect three-point sermon. With an altar call that struck at your heart cords and you ran down and you had a moment of emotional overload and you made a decision that maybe didn't last till you walked out the door. That's what he's saying. I came, I presented the truth, and I let the Spirit do His work. Now, I hate to say this, and let me preface this by saying, I am grateful that we are at a church where our pastor preaches truth. And our pastor preaches spiritual and biblical truth. But let me say this very bluntly, that so much of modern day preaching is really just neo-sophism. What do I mean by that? It sounds really good. It draws crowds. But it's nothing more than techniques designed to gain attention. Now, a lot of times we use illustrations in our sermons. And I am not against illustrations whatsoever. In fact, we're about to do a big illustrated sermon. I think they're a great way to present the gospel, a great way to preach. And I've seen some really great illustrations that got the point across. But let me say this. If the illustration becomes the star, if you have something that draws people in the doors, if it becomes the main focus, then we're no longer preaching. One example, I remember very, very vividly a pastor, actually a large church in, in the DFW Metroplex, who preached a message, and in, as a part of his illustration, he rented a cherry red Ferrari. Cherry red Ferrari. He had it up on the stage. They brought it in, had some video clips of it racing around the motor speedway, talked about how fast it could go. And you know what? I will never forget that cherry red Ferrari. But you know what I have forgotten? What he preached about. What points he used what his scripture was, what his application was, I don't know. What I remember truthfully is so insignificant, but it was the thing that drew crowds. It was the thing that made the numbers grow. Now, some people have argued and said, no, illustrations are a great way to do that. Jesus used illustrations. They called them parables. He used parables in order to make things easier and understandable. And when I hear that, I think, I think you might need to go reread Scripture because parables were not used to make things more understandable. In reality, they were used to conceal the truth. He spoke in such a way that only those who were being enlightened by the Holy Spirit could even understand them. Interestingly enough, in light of the many church growth programs, Jesus actually church, practiced church downsizing. Have you ever noticed that Jesus wasn't really thrilled about having a lot of followers? In fact, when he did, he would often try to get away and spend time with the smallest amount of, uh, of people possible. We know of one place where it says that he had at least 5,000 followers. And looking back at history, we know that it was probably more because they only counted the men, typically. So you could easily say if their spouses were there, that jumps the number up to 10,000. If they had children there, we're talking about 20, 25, 30,000 people that Jesus had as a following. If I had a church with 30,000 people, I'd be writing books and I'd be retired by now because that would be success, right? I made it. I'm a successful pastor. But what did Jesus do? He made them all go away because he realized that they were just there to be fed. He'd rather have 12 people who were pursuing truth, who were seeking the Spirit, than a bunch of people who were just there for a free meal. In fact, it was a parable that he used that made the 5,000 plus followers leave. He said something that was very offensive, and they left. And what's interesting about that, that's in John 6. What's interesting about that is whenever he turned to his disciples and he asked the question, are you guys going to go too? What was the response? I love this. They say, where are we going to go? No one can give us the revelation of eternal life. 
that's what it's all about. It's all about us having a revelation and realizing it's either true or it's not. And if it's true, it doesn't really matter what my experience was at church. It doesn't really matter if I like it. It doesn't really matter if it tickles my ears. It's truth and there's nowhere else to go. I recently saw someone on Facebook who, my heart was broken by this, has turned away from Christ because of his experience with Christians, because of the church, and he felt like uh, he was more accepted by previous lifestyles than he was by the church, so he left and he went back. And I remember reading that and thinking, first I was thinking, man, we've really dropped the ball as the church that people don't feel welcome to come in, but then I thought, no, you know what, and we are, and I don't want to take away from that, but there's something much deeper there. That you would really give up your eternal security because of how you were treated by other people? That's someone who has never received true spiritual transformation and revelation. Because if you have, you would realize like Peter, you know what? I may not be accepted by people. Truth is truth. I'm not going to give up my eternity in heaven because of the way you treated me. What do I, what do I give you in the process? See, we have to realize that church is not about finding a place where people accept us. It's about joining a body of people who are worshiping the same God for the same reason because we were once blind and now we see. That's what it's about. And that's what happens when we have had spiritual revelation. We really don't care how everybody else treats us because we know that there's only one who matters and he treated us pretty good. I recently saw a quote from Paul Washer. If you're not familiar with Paul Washer, he's a really great evangelist. In fact, uh, Pastor Mark is showing a sermon of his tonight that really changed his life, and I've watched it too. It's very, very good. He said, a genuine believer can doubt their own salvation, but they will never doubt the truth that Christ is their only hope. Only revelation through the Spirit can open our eyes to truth. You know, we we go through these moments where we realize, or we, we might doubt where we are, we might doubt that we're in the right place, but I know one thing for sure, there is no other way to salvation. There's no other way to eternal life but Jesus. And the moments that I feel like I'm not measuring up are the moments that I'm actually not living in faith because I'm thinking, you know what, there's actually a way that I could measure up. Once I accept that I'm not, that the only way that that, that I can ever have salvation, that I can ever have a hope, It's through Jesus Christ and him accepting me exactly who I am and transforming me and changing me as he walks with me. So many books and so much time, so much effort has been put put toward learning how to communicate the gospel better, more relevant, and in such a way that it draws larger crowds. Now, I want to be clear. I have nothing wrong with trying to find a way to present the gospel in the most accessible way possible. I think that's a great thing to do. In fact, I've spent a lot of my time reading a lot of books, taking classes in seminary to do just that because if the word of God is really as powerful as I believe it is, I want to make sure that I'm not getting in my own way by the way that I communicate. I want to make sure that I'm presenting it in a way that is understandable, but we can't persuade people into spiritual growth. Something has to take place in the spirit. Now let's look, jumping, jumping back into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17. He says, making mention of you in my prayers, in my prayers, focus on that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is he saying? Notice a couple times there he said the word prayer. I pray. I pray. He's not, he's, he's getting away from the idea that he could come and present a really, really great presentation of the gospel. He's not saying, look, I know that you're going to have spiritual wisdom because whenever I was at your church, I got about 57 amens. People were just shouting. I got so many hashtags on Twitter saying, you know, hashtag this, hashtag that. Everybody loved my sermons. That's how I know you have spiritual wisdom. He said, no. He said, whenever I left, I pray that you would. Because it really doesn't matter how well I preached or how well I didn't. At the end of the day, it's the spirit that has to make this happen. It's the spirit that has to grow within us. He talks about here that he didn't want it to rest 
on the wisdom of man. And it's funny because as I stood up here and I was, I I, kind of rehearsed this before I, I came up just to make sure I understood my notes. And as I stood up here, I got to this point and I just, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to explain this well. And I finally stopped and said, what am I doing? I can't explain this well. I can't show us how to apply this. What I'm saying right here is the very thing that I was trying to do. I was trying to explain this in such a way. You either get it or you don't. Either the Spirit has revealed it or He hasn't. And I believe He has. I pray that He will. But you can't have an aha moment in the spiritual unless the Holy Spirit opens your spiritual eyes. Now, how do we apply this? This, truthfully, this could be applied so many different ways. This, in so many ways, is, is, is the crux of the struggle that we go through in our faith. It has to do with our struggle whenever there's someone in our family who just, they're living in sin, and no matter what we do, no matter what we say, they can't see it. It's the struggle that we personally walk through as, as believers whenever we feel like we can't grow in a certain area. And we read devotional after devotional, and we pray, and we have someone pray with us, and we have accountability partners, and we have all of this, and we, we, we just, we try, and we try, and we try. Pastor Mike actually talked about this on Sunday, that we just, we strive to be better. One of the, one, one phrase that, that, that strikes me funny every time I hear it is when somebody refers to another person as a really good Christian, there's no such thing as a really good Christian. And what they're actually saying is they act a lot like a Christian. They do a lot of really good things. But what a Christian is, is someone who has been bought by the blood of Jesus and being transformed by the Holy Spirit daily. There is no good Christian, and that's the reason why we need to be a Christian, because we're all bad. All of us. Whenever I talked about justice, the last time I was up here, I said justice means we all go to hell. But we don't have to, because the price has been paid, and we have the opportunity to receive what Christ has given to us and to grow in the spirit as we become more like him, not just better versions of ourselves. So two things that I want to talk about today of how we can apply this, how we can attempt to apply this. The first thing is for me as a pastor, but not just as a pastor, but as an evangelist, as a, and all of us are. If you're a believer, you're an evangelist. Your job, you're called to spread the gospel, to go and make disciples of all people, and that can be a struggle sometimes, especially with the world that we live in. Because have you ever felt like people just don't get it? Have you ever felt like when you turn on the news, how can people be so crazy out there? How can they do the things that they do? How can the world act like the world? Why do sinners act like sinners? When you start thinking about it that way, you realize it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But we have to remember that there's only so much that we can do. One way that we see this is is the parable of the sowers, and I won't belabor it. I'll just kind of summarize it here. The parable of the sowers was a parable in which Jesus talked about a farmer who went out and he threw seed. He threw the same seed in the same way on different soils. Some soil took it in and it grew. Some soil didn't. Some soil took it in and it was choked out. His point was this. It's the same message given to different types of people. Some people will get it. Some people won't. And as a pastor, as I get up here, I have one job, and that's to preach what God's given me to preach. I can't control how you receive it. I can't control if it's offensive. I can't control if it sticks with you or it doesn't. I have to allow the Holy Spirit to do that. And even in individual places, if you have a family member or somebody in your, in your workplace who you have been trying to witness to and they're just not getting it, just do what you're called to do. Preach the gospel. Be an example. Let the Holy Spirit do the work that the Holy Spirit's going to do. But the temptation is this. And I mentioned it a second ago. We turn on the news and we see how crazy the world is and we think, wow, how could they do that? Why is the world acting like that? People are so terrible and we forget this, that we were just like that before we had our aha moment. We did those things too. Maybe not exactly the same way, but we had our own stuff that we dealt with and we... we we get to this point where we're now among the saints, and now I can look at the world and say, wow, look how bad the world is, forgetting that we were just there not that long ago. And sometimes we act like it still. Easy to be judgmental. My faith background is uh, that my family went to the Brownsville Revival. If you're familiar with the Brownsville Revival, it was a, 
outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pensacola, Florida. In 1995, uh, on a Father's Day, the Holy Spirit broke out and things began to happen in this church. And it became a place where people came all over the country to receive a, a, a touch from God. And like any good revival, one of the main components was a call to repentance. People would flood to the altars and they would begin to repent for things that nobody would talk about in their right mind unless the Holy Spirit had convicted them. Things like people coming up and talking about living a double life, having multiple spouses, things that could put them in jail if anyone found out. I mean, big stuff that only the Holy Spirit could have prompted them to do. And what tended to happen is that people would come and I believe they had real true conversions. They had real true repentance but then, because it was a, a lot of people would come from other places to this revival and then go back home, they would go home with this spiritual encounter that they had received. They'd go back to their church with people who had not been here, who had not received this spiritual enlightenment, and they would begin to see other people doing what they had done before this moment, and they would, uh, they would begin to say, no, you need to stop doing that. You need to repent because of what I heard back here. You need to stop living that way. I know I did the same thing with you last week, but now I've had this moment and I'm telling you that you need to change. And their heart was in the right place. But what it tended to do, in, in some cases it was effective, but what it tended to do was one of two things. The first thing that it most often did is it caused people to reject what they were saying because just like those who were in the cave who hadn't seen the light, they didn't understand what they were talking about. All they knew was last week they were acting the same way. They didn't have that aha moment to be changed. Or the second alternative would be this, that they knew that it was right, so they would apply it, and then they would live in legalism because they had not had that spiritual revelation for themselves. They were just doing it because so-and-so told them that it's what they needed to do. They had not had that moment in their lives. If we forget this, then what we become is Pharisees, demanding conformity without revelation. Remember what Paul was before his conversion. He was a Pharisee, demanding people to live a certain way, but they had no revelation to get them there. As a Christian, I have to remember that it's not my job to grow. It's my job to receive the necessary spiritual nutrients so that, that God is made available. For some reason, and I talked about this the last time that I shared, because of the way that we, we cover our sin and we cover ourselves, we feel the need to work and work rather than just allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us. I saw an ad the other day from a Christian publisher and it read, the number one predictor of a person's spiritual health is regular practice of personal Bible reading. Now, doesn't that just sound real nice? That if you want to be a spiritually healthy person, you just need to open up your Bible and read it. That's all you need to do. And the, that's the number one indicator. Of, if you read your Bible, you're good to go. That's not true at all. Because I know a lot of people who know the Bible backwards and forwards in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and they do not have the fruit to show it. I know professors whenever I was in seminary who you'd find out about things in your life, and you're like, but you taught me about the gospel. You taught me things about the Bible I had never seen before. You know scripture. You've read scripture. That is not the primary indicator of a person's spiritual life. If the fruit isn't there, I don't care what you read. The primary indicator of a person's spiritual health is the fruit that comes from it. The fruit of change. Not what you do. It's what's being done through you. There's nothing wrong with regularly reading the Bible. I, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But can I be blunt in saying that I know a lot of people who read it religiously. I use that term in a couple different ways. But there's no fruit to show for it. There's one individual, and I won't name his name, and you may know who I'm talking about. But it was a very famous apologist, which is a person who defends the Christian faith. Recently, I say recently, it's been a couple years now. <clears throat> he was probably the best, the greatest apologist that maybe the world has ever seen since the Apostle Paul. He knew the Bible. He knew how to debate with people from other religions. He knew how to defend our Christian faith and so, so well. He passed away, and what came out after he died was that his life had been full of sin, horrible, horrible things, not just stuff that he was hiding, but involving a lot of people, stuff that very he definitely should have known it was wrong. 
And now his entire reputation has been disbanded to publishers who wrote his books. You can't buy his books anymore. I know of schools that used to use his books as textbooks. They don't use them anymore. They took their, all of his stuff down there. His entire reputation has been diminished, destroyed, not just diminished, destroyed. This is a person who led people to Jesus Christ. People who have authentic relationships with Christ are, are Christians because of his message. And I'm not going to stand here and be his judge. The grace of God is much bigger than we can ever understand. But is it possible that him or someone like him who spent their entire life studying, reading, knowing, might stand before God and God say, I don't know you. Because they never had a spiritual revelation that changed their life. Spiritual wisdom is not about what you know. Often we think that wisdom is about knowing things. It's about insight. It's not about what you know. It is all about who you know. Spiritual wisdom is the enlightenment, the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we know, just like what Paul Washer said, we might doubt whether we're saved, but we will not doubt where that salvation comes from. We will not doubt that there's only one way that we can be saved. There's only one way to grow, and there's only one way that our family members, our co-workers, the people who we care about will ever receive anything, and that's through Jesus. That's through an aha moment that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Now, there's three things that I want to mention today that we can do. Three things that we can practice that will help us. And the first one is alignment and truth. And I want to go back and I want to say that I do believe that reading Scripture can do this. If we are grounded in the Word of God, then we will be aligned with truth. And I believe that we open ourselves to receive what the Holy Spirit has to show us. I believe that's the primary place where the Holy Spirit will speak to us is through the pages of Scripture. We need to align ourselves with truth. We need to be in a good church, a place where truth is, is, is preached. We need to have people around us who are going to challenge us whenever we're not living right, whenever we're not doing the right thing. Secondly, we need to humbly acknowledge our limits. That is hard to do. I know it's hard for me to do. Humbly acknowledge our limits. What we know, the things that have been revealed to us, is not to our credit. What we know, the faith that we have, we did not earn. The faith that we had, we did not receive it because we were better than anyone else. We received it because we have a merciful, graceful God who gave it to us. We need to know that our limits are this, that we don't know it all, that every situation that we walk through is different. It's easy for us to judge someone else having never walked through what they've walked through. If you don't know what the struggle of someone else is, it's really easy to say, I don't understand why you can't get this. You don't know where they've come from, just like they don't know where you have. Now, I'm not denying that there is a very central truth, but I, I, I will say this, that how we get there sometimes looks different from person to person. What is meaningful to me may not be meaningful to you. How God chooses to speak to me may not be how he chooses to speak to you. And we need to be patient with each other. We need to be non-judgmental toward each other. And we need to know that the Holy Spirit, being the only one who can do the work, may very well be working in that person's life, even if we don't think so. Even if it doesn't seem like it on the outside. We need to know our limits. We need to know that it is not up to us to save the world. It's not up to us to save anybody. We have one calling, it's to preach the gospel, to be an example, and to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit do. And the last thing is this, pray diligently. Pray diligently. That's what Paul's doing. <clears throat> Paul had already laid the groundwork. He had already gone to these churches. He had preached the message, but he still continued to pray. He still continued to pray that God would open up their eyes because he knew that it didn't matter how well he constructed his sermons, how well he taught it, only the Holy Spirit could help the truth to sink in. So why don't we try this? Rather than judging the world, why don't we pray for them? Rather than turning on the news, first of all, let's turn off the news because what good does it do? But if we do, rather than saying, wow, I cannot believe that sinful people are acting like sinful people. Maybe we should realize, wow, my heart breaks because they don't know what I know. They don't know who I know. And I pray that they will. Because it's not going to change because some law said. It's not going to change because some politician tells them they can't do certain things anymore. Their heart's still going to be the same. It changes when the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of their heart and changes it. And only he can do that. And only we can pray for them. Rather than arguing with people, let's pray. I know too many people 
who feel that it is their need to defend God. It's not. I always laugh that apologetics, we mentioned earlier, is the defense of Christianity. Christianity doesn't need to be defended. It needs to be lived. That's what we're called to do. So rather than arguing with people, rather than judging people, rather than trying to save the world, let's diligently pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this word, and I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes. Whether my sermon was good or not really doesn't matter because it's your spirit that impacts people. It's your spirit that opens spiritual eyes and gives us that aha moment. I pray that today that you would begin to give spiritual revelations to the people in this room, that they would know who you are, that they would know what you're trying to show them, that things that maybe they've struggled with, maybe they've struggled to understand, that it would click, they would have those moments where they walk out and they are in the light. I pray that you would help us to be patient with others who don't get it, who maybe haven't experienced what we've experienced. I pray that you would help us to be non-judgmental toward those who have not walked in what we've walked in. And you would help us to live out everything that you've called us to live. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Pastor Mike will be back Sunday. If you guys can join us on Friday, we would love to have you there. It's going to be a fun night, uh, but we will see you on Sunday. Thank you so much.